2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4. The whole theme of 2 Kings is covenants and character, looking at it from the Lord's character and His promises, His covenants that He makes with His people Israel and how He keeps them. And then, of course, looking at the character and the unfaithfulness or faithfulness of some of the human beings that we get to study throughout First and Second Kings. But in chapter 4, as we're here, remember at the end of chapter 3, Israel has reconquered Moab, uh, but the hero of that section of Scripture is not King Jehoram. Because remember, he went beyond God's boundaries for war. He disobeyed the Lord, and he basically laid waste to the entire land of Moab. The hero is also not King Jehoshaphat, because he pulls his troops out because his soldiers are angry at having become involved in this wicked war. In fact, aside from the Lord, of course, the only real hero is Elisha. He delivers God's promise, and God preserves his people. And so when we get to chapter 5, King Jehoram's still around, he's still on the throne, but the focus is going to be on, on the one who's really being an example and a leader in the community and, and looking at how God uses him, and that's, of course, Elisha. So chapter 4, verse 1, we'll look at the first of, of two incidences here where Elijah is leading and, and being an example and ministering to the people, serving the people. It says, now there cried a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets unto Elisha, saying, Thy servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant did fear the Lord. And the creditor is come to take unto him my two sons to be bondmen. And so we get this setting laid out for us here, and it starts off by explaining that one of the wives of Elisha's students comes to him asking for help. Now they're cried. The word they're cried, it means to call out for help or be out of sorrow because you're in an intense, hard situation. And it mentions here that she's a wife of one of these students at the school of the prophets. I do find it interesting that when we look through Scripture that we don't ever see this idea of, well, celibacy and ministry, right? You don't ever see that in the Scripture. The idea that those who serve God in ministry being, they're all called to celibacy, that's not a biblical idea. That's a, that was in pagan religions. It was in idolatrous religions, and then it crept into Christianity. We look even from the earliest of times where God set up spiritual leadership, and the priests and the Levites, they were all married because it was their descendants who would serve after they retired. There's no more priests after one generation if they don't marry, don't have kids. In fact, we look in the New Testament, and the New Testament requires that a pastor be a devoted husband who is already leading his family well before he can be considered for the role of a pastor. So I'm not saying that God never calls someone to celibacy as they serve in the ministry, but while God does do that so that they can devote their lives to how they serve God, that's the exception, not the norm. That's not the way that it needs to be, or God is saying it should be. In fact, the Bible teaches that one is not better than the other with one exception, unless you're trying to do the opposite of what God called you to do. Like if God called you to give your life to Him and not pursue marriage, and you're going to say, well, no, I'm going to do that, well, then, then you're in the trouble. Or if God's called you to be married, and you're like, no, I'm going to go this alone. And the Lord's like, that's not what I've called you to do. Ultimately, we need to be obedient to what God's called us to do. Now, the school of prophets, the reason it came into existence is because the priests and the Levites had abandoned their duties to teach God's Word to the people who lived in the region where they, God settled them. Remember, every tribe got land except for the Levites, right? 
They were spread out throughout all the nation of Israel, and their job was in the region they were assigned to to teach the Scriptures, the law, to the people. But they abandoned that duty. And so a student here who now these prophets, they were raised up to now fill that role that the Levites had forsaken. And so these students, if they're going to take on that role, they would need to leave behind taking care of their own lands to provide for their families in order to become a prophet. Now, since the reason the priests and the Levites abandoned their ministry is because, well, the people had stopped supporting them, you have to ask the question, how these guys get their support? How were they taken care of? The Bible doesn't tell us. But it seems that these prophets encountered a similar problem that sometimes modern missionaries do when the husband dies. For it says, listen, you know your servant, my husband, he feared the Lord. You know he feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take unto him my two sons to be bondmen. Your servant, my husband, the man who left his fields to come and to serve the Lord, he, he revered God. He, he loved what God loved. He followed the Lord. But even though he followed the Lord, the creditors have now come. It is possible this fa- family had already had financial issues, but it's more probable that upon his death, well, now they didn't see a need to support the family. For some reason, people often see missionary families as no longer needing support once the husband dies. Wives oftentimes are left in a really serious… I remember I was in a situation where I had to come and preach at a church where they were finding out that Sunday that their pastor had had a moral failure and was stepping away from the ministry. And so he stepped aside, and, and the church is going through a difficult time, and probably the most difficult part, though, was for his wife. This is a woman who had, she'd left her career behind. She'd left everything behind to, to serve, to assist her husband in the sense of supporting Kim and being a, uh, taking care of the family so he could serve the Lord. And so she had left career behind. She had left network connections behind, all these things behind. And one of the most difficult things for her was to try to rebuild her life so she could care for her family with her husband being gone. It's important to remember that the entire family sacrifices to do full-time ministry. Wives often leave behind schooling, career opportunities, and some of the other things I mentioned. It's not like they could just come off the mission field and get a job that pays for their needs. And things were even worse back then. You see, the law allowed a person to enter, it says bondman here, but it means indentured servitude to pay off a debt. So you are a bond servant in the sense that your whole purpose was is that you were going to work until the debt was paid off. But God has set up in His law that those debts must be canceled either every seven years or when the year of Jubilee occurred, whichever happened first. All debts were canceled. And the problem, though, in Israel is that even though that's God's law, is that no one was living by God's law. Indentured servitude had turned into slavery. And so this woman faces losing her boys not just until the debts paid off, but possibly forever. Some might say, well, that sounds fair to me. What's the problem? Well, remember, who's going to take care of this woman if her boys can't work? It's not like she can just go out and get a job. Things didn't work that way back then. What's going to even, beyond that, what's going to become of her God-given husband's inheritance if it's absorbed by creditors? I am all for people paying off their debts, but the Lord, you read through the Scripture and you see He is very clearly opposed to any economic system that puts people in economic chains that extend for a long period of time. He's opposed to it. It's funny, we have all these debates about different economic systems. God's not for any of them. 
It says in the book of Revelation he's going to destroy every economic system because he's going to destroy those who enslave the souls of men through money. Some object, well, they should have known what they were getting into when they used that credit card or when they took that student loan. I understand that. And while the Bible warns about the danger of being foolish with credit and it encourages us not to use credit, the law of Moses, though, never, ever took that harsh line of thinking with those who got into trouble with credit. Now, if you're messing around with credit, you need to stop because it's not free money. In particular, I've noticed over the years they like to target college kids, right? They're right out of high school, fresh out of school. Both my sons, when they, they graduated from high school, all of a sudden these mails started coming in from all these credit card companies. And the problem is, is sometimes when you have discussions with a young person who's, they've never really been educated about that, they feel like it's, well, it's kind of like free money. It's just another kind of a monthly payment that you have until you max it out and need another one, right? So it's not free money, nor do I believe, according to the Scripture, is it using God's money well when you view credit as just another monthly fee like your electricity or your water. And if you've gotten in trouble with credit, you need to seek ways to pay it off as soon as possible. Pay what you owe. That's God's command. But there's nothing wrong with asking for mercy while you're working hard to pay off your debt. We find many people throughout Scripture who begged for mercy regarding their debt, and God never chastised them. In fact, He critiques the one person who did chastise them in a parable. And there's also nothing wrong with laws that curb wicked creditors or even cut what they can collect. We talk about people who are in debt and say, don't get into debt, don't get into debt. True, biblical. But if you're a salesman, you should not try to get someone to buy something they cannot afford. God calls that wicked just as much as a person who's being foolish with credit. There are proverbs about that as well. All right, off my soapbox. This family, though, did not incur their debt by using credit foolishly. It tells us here he feared the Lord. He lived by God's principles. He loved what God loved, and he was walking in obedience to God's laws. And so this unnamed woman, she appeals to Elisha, the head of the school, because she says, we did things the right way, Elisha, but we've still fallen into trouble. And so Elisha, verse 2, I love his answer. He said unto her, what shall I do for you? I'm not a banker. I don't just have money to bail out the families in our, our school when they get into financial trouble. What, what shall I do? And the answer is nothing. I mean, Elijah, that's not who he is. But I love that Elisha doesn't stop there. He says, what shall I do for you? I mean, I don't know if I'm the best person to come to, but tell me, what do you have in your house? And she said, your handmaid has not anything in the house save a pot of oil. I think some of us stop when when someone comes to us and they start sharing their problems with us and we go, I can't help with that. I think some of us just stop there. But I don't think that's the right way of looking at it. We live in a a fair, this area around here has a lot of low-income housing, has a lot of government housing, and so we get a ton of people that come through looking for help. And there are times when someone's in front of you and you hear all their problems they have and you go, I can't fix that. Like, I don't have the ability to just say, hey, let me fix that. Our church doesn't have the ability to just say, hey, let's fix that for you. And I always used to feel like, well, what can I do? And I remember we were meeting, uh, me and Tom, with someone who had an established homeless ministry in their church, ministering to folks who have needs, and, and she was going through some of the th- way things they set up. And I remember one of the most important things that I came out of that meeting is she said this. She said, listen, she goes, 
if someone comes to you and, and the only thing you do for them is you go, listen, we're gonna take your need before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and we're gonna intercede and ask him to move on your behalf. He goes, that is something. That is something. The right way of looking at it isn't, well, I can't do anything that I can see. The right way of looking at it is that we always know someone who can do something, and that's the Lord. So Elijah says, tell me, let's start with what you have. And she goes, I got nothing except this pot of oil. Here's the truth. If somebody comes to you, and even if you've got nothing that you can give to them, you have your relationship with the Lord, you can intercede for that person right then and there. You can look them in the eye and go, listen, my God has promised that he shall supply all my needs through his riches and glory. And my God, when I pray, he hears me. And so I'm going to take this need that you have before his throne, and I'm going to ask him to move on your behalf. That is something we can always do for someone. We can intercede for that person. We can ask God to come through for them. All of us can do that for somebody. Now, I'll be the first to admit one pot of olive oil is not much at all, but the truth is God doesn't need even that much to work. Look at verse 3. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us, but I mean, clearly, Elisha has to be getting his instructions from the Lord here. And so in verse 3, he said, go, and I want you to borrow you vessels abroad of all your neighbors, even empty vessels, borrow not a few, and when you are come in, you shall shut the door upon you and upon your sons, and you're going to pour out into all those vessels, and you shall set aside that which is full. I, this is one of those moments where, like, I wish there was a video recording Bible, because I would have loved to have seen her face when he's like, oh. I've got a solution for you. You got that pot of oil? Here's what you're going to do. Get a ton of, of empty vessels. Gather as many as you can. Not a few, a ton of them. And then just start pouring from your little pot. And then when it's full, set it aside and get the next one. Because the way my mind works is I would go, big pot, my little pot. There's no filling this up. Sometimes when I'm pouring out honey into my tea, it comes out so slow that you actually use so little of it that it gives the illusion that you're not using much. And then, of course, you know, a week later, you're like, oh, I see the honey bottle's got a dent in it. This is not what Elijah's talking about. He says the oil's just going to keep pouring without ever looking emptier. Oh, I would have loved to see their faces as they're pouring. Because I know how I would do this. Like, I'm the guy, I'm the disciple that would have gotten in trouble because as Jesus is like, here, pass out the food. I'm like, no. I'm like, give it to John. I want to watch. I want to watch. I want to watch you take the bread and take the fish out of the basket. I want to watch it go poof, and there's more. I want to see it. That would have been me. Mom's pouring. She's like, get the next vessel. I'm like, no. I want to watch that thing fill up again. And, but probably what happened was it just never it just never emptied is probably what happened. It's just probably just kept pouring and pouring and pouring. There's nothing for the eternal, omnipotent, and all-wise God who created time and space to multiply olive oil. Absolutely nothing. And don't forget that when you encounter financial challenges in your life. I've had times when we were in a financial need, a situation of financial need, and the Lord sent me a job. Job to go do to make some money, extra money. I've been in those situations when we were able to sell some things or whatever and provide for the need. And then I've been in those situations where we didn't have anything to sell, no jobs came through, and I didn't know what to do. And the Lord just did some of the oddest things. 
I've probably told some of these stories so many times that you probably don't want to hear them again. But there have been those moments where God will, he sent a bird. He sent a, like a, a rare bird that we sold for $75 and we needed $75. No joke. Sent a bird just to fly right into the church. I saw one of the ushers come walking in with this big, huge bird. And I'm like, what is going on? Why does he have a bird? And the Lord's like, because I sent him because you're going to sell him and pay that bill that you, you don't have any money for. Or a check would come out of the mail or someone would show up with groceries. We didn't say anything and it just happened. Don't forget this truth when you encounter financial challenges because God is not limited by the resources you have or you don't have. He's not even limited by the resources that exist in the world. And he gives us a beautiful promise at the end of Philippians chapter 4 and verse 19 where Paul has just been talking about his finances and the challenges he's gone through in life and how they were so generous to help him out. He says, I have all and I abound. I'm full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you. It was like an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. And then he says this, and it's so fascinating. He's like, you guys have blessed me so much. Like, I have everything I need and even more. I have more than I need because of how generous you've been. He goes, but here's the truth of it. If, even if that runs out, my God, but my God, but what? Like, why is he saying but? But even though you've given me this awesome thing and things are good now, I know they may not be in the future. So the truth is, it doesn't matter because my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Not just will he take care of my need, he'll take care of your need too. It's a beautiful promise of Scripture. Now, two parts of Elijah's instructions here I think are worth mentioning. He tells her, when you go out, get vessels, and he adds, don't be stingy about it either. Not just two houses or like four vessels. Get as many as you can. Don't just get a few. In other words, this widow had multiple things she needed to do to experience this blessing. First off, she needed to collect the vessels. Secondly, she needed not to not let unbelief or laziness keep her from getting as many of of those vessels as possible. There have been times when I've been pouring into an individual or, or giving my time and energy to some ministry or whatever, and you think to yourself, you go, Lord, is there any fruit out of this? Is anything coming of this? And then I go down to the rescue mission. It's a homeless mission once a month. And there was a period for like six months, I would go down there and the guys just sit there while you're teaching. They're falling asleep. They don't care about anything you have to say. And I'm like, Lord, I could be with my family right now. Why am I here? And the Lord would just say, keep going. Like I would go down there and every time I go down there, I'm like, this is the last time, Lord, I'm not coming back. And the Lord wouldn't let me free of it. He wouldn't let me go. I could have been lazy. I could have not trusted him. And then God started getting through. Some of these guys started perking up. God's words started getting in their hearts. Lives started changing. I wonder if some of us miss out on what God wants to do simply because we won't carry out his instructions or because we don't think it's worth it to go all out in following his instructions. And so has has God maybe given you some instructions recently? Maybe it's as a spouse. Maybe it's as a parent. Maybe it's as a coworker. He said, I want you to do this. Are you all in on doing what he says? 
The second issue that catches my attention here, the part of Elijah's instructions that's worth mentioning, is he tells them, when you go get all the vessels, bring them home and then shut the door. Shut the door. I don't want you to do this outside. Now, society was a little bit different back then. They did almost everything outside. So you did the cooking outside. You would usually have the houses the way they worked. And if you come to Israel with us, you'll see this when we look at some of the older cities. They would have four houses next to each other, and then they would all share a common area. They did their cooking, their bathing, all that occurred in that area. Uh, that's why when David you know, saw Bathsheba, people were like, why is Bathsheba taking a shower outside? They all did back then, right? It's not like you had more running water inside. It's not like you could take a shower anywhere inside. You didn't have room for that kind of stuff. So anyway, normally you would do this type of stuff outside. But he says, no, I want you to shut the door and go inside. In other words, the family wasn't to publicize the miracle. This wasn't a, everyone come see the magic oil pot experience. This was a quietly obey God and trust Him experience. Now, I know I might say, but Lord, how many more would believe if they saw the magic oil pot? But you and I don't know that. Truth is, Jesus rose from the dead and look at the world today. Seeing is not believing. If that were the case, we wouldn't have half the societal controversies that exist today. I'll stop there. Sometimes, sometimes God tells us to do things quietly because He doesn't want us to get sidetracked into thinking everyone else has to do what He told us to do. Elijah's message wasn't a message for every Israeli. It wasn't even a message for every impoverished Israeli. Come on, come all. If you're, if you, if you're in debt, just bring the, the, your oil pot. God's going to multiply it. No. Nope. This plan was just for this widow's family. And so, don't get frustrated with other believers because maybe they're not going through what you're going through, or maybe they're not dedicating their time to the ministry God's called you to do. Don't do that if you're doing that. Stop doing that if you're doing that. Unless someone is, something is a direct command to all believers in the Bible, you and I can't tell others they need to do what we're doing for God. Serve the Lord faithfully and be blessed with that. And so I'd ask you also, has God called you to quietly obey Him or quietly trust Him for something? Follow His instructions His way. God will honor that just like He honors this widow's obedience and faith. Look at verse 5. And so she went from him, and she shut the door upon her, and upon her sons who brought the vessels to her, and she poured out. And it came to pass when the vessels were full that she said unto her son, bring me still a vessel. Keep bringing them. This thing's going to go forever. And he said unto her, there is not a vessel more. That's it. They're all full. And so at that point, the oil stayed. It stopped. In other words, this was not a permanent thing. This was a one-time miracle to deal with her debt and then provide for their necessities in the foreseeable future. Verse 7, and then she came and told the man of God, and he said, go, sell the oil, and pay your debt. And then you live, that's important, you live and your children off the rest. You see, Elijah, when he first came to her, he knew the danger she was in. He knew she'd be destitute without her sons to take care of her. Those boys, of course, they're going to need to grow up fast. But this would at least get the family onto their feet until they were able to adequ- those boys were able to adequately provide for her. 
And so what a beautiful miracle that we see here, that God cares about our financial struggles. He, he cares about it when we go through tragedy or we face a, a seemingly impossible crisis, and He wants to help. Do you believe that? Well, when we get to verse 8, now we move from a situation of tragedy and suffering to a situation of prosperity and generosity. Verse 8 says, and it fell on a day, or there was a day, that Elijah passed to Shunem, where was a great woman. Shunem is in the middle of the Jezreel Valley in the northern part of Israel. There's a hill called Mora in the middle of the valley, and this city was at the base of that hill. And it says there lived in the city of Shunem a great woman. The word here means an important woman, a woman of high status. doesn't tell us why she had high status. She could either be wealthy, influential, or maybe she was well-known for her character, or maybe all three of those things. But obviously, she's in a very different situation than the widow. The widow's impoverished. This woman is not. She is well-off, and she is an important person in her city. And it says she constrained him to eat bread. The word constrained here means to prevail upon or overpower. She invited him over for bread. She said, come eat with us. you're, You're passing through here, come eat with us. And he said, no. He tried to turn her down, but she was insistent. And because she was so insistent, she's like, fine. All right, lady, I'll come over and I'll eat with you. And so it was that as often as he passed by, he turned in thither to eat bread. So a friendship eventually formed between Elisha, and we'll see later she's married, Elisha and this couple. I think this is, her persistence is really cool because I don't think, generally speaking, most of us are very persistent with relationships these days. You know, if God puts it on your heart to reach out to someone to bless them, don't be discouraged because they don't respond by saying, oh, you're the one I've been praying for. Praise Jesus. I don't know about you, but most of the time, people that have become my friends aren't because I was like, I'm looking for a friend. Most of the time, it's someone, they just kept pouring into my life, and eventually I'm like, man, this person is so kind to me. You know, so, 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 they're so nice to me. Like, I, I, need to be, I should be nice back to them. And sometimes that forms into a wonderful friendship. If God tells you to go bless somebody, be faithful and be dogged about it. Obviously, some friendships are born out of common ground and mutual effort. But if if you think of some of your close friendships, I'd wager to say that some, if not most of them, were forged either by their initial effort or by your initial effort to make the friendship work. I think too often we're put off because someone doesn't seem as interested in starting a friendship as we are. Well, if the Lord put it on your heart to be a blessing to somebody, well, then just be a blessing and let the Lord do what He wants to do in the situation. Well, this friendship became so, so frequent and so close that the woman proposes something to her husband. Look at verse 9. And she said unto her husband, Behold now, I perceive that this is a holy man of God which passes by us continually. Let us make a little chamber, I pray you, on the wall. And let us set for him there a bed and a table and a stool and a candlestick. And it shall be when he comes to us that he shall turn in thither. As he just keeps coming through, she's thinking, I, I don't think he, he's here to sell shoes. She, she kind of starts to figure out, I think this guy's a prophet. He's, he's a holy man of God. A holy means set apart as sacred. Certainly all of God's people are called to be holy, but not all of us are called to dedicate our entire life to serve as a prophet like Elisha did. And so while they aren't called to be prophets, it's on her heart 
to be even more of a blessing to this prophet. And she says, let's make a little chamber. The word here means a small roof chamber. Roofs were used back then as like a, like a patio. It was like your porch. And so it was like an extra room. They would usually have a little small wall around the top of the a roof, and you'd go up. There'd be, there'd be furniture up there and stuff, and that's where you would, you'd hang out and, and have leisure time. She says, why don't we take a part of our roof and make a little room in there? The word there, wall, actually means on the ceiling or on the roof. This room would would have its own set of stairs leading to a private entrance. It'd be a nice home away from home for Elijah while he was serving, wherever God had called him up in that area. Let's get for him a bed, a table, a stool, a candlestick. He can study. He can do whatever he needs to do, and it shall be when he comes to us that he shall turn in thither. Now, I'm going to have to call shenanigans on this verse because I've heard pastors use this verse to justify owning multiple large estates. They get critiqued, you know, the news does some expose, and this guy's got three mansions, whatever, and they'll say, well, Elisha had two homes. That's a little different, a little different. Having two or three mansions is a little different than having a little tiny room on the roof of somebody's house. And I think it also violates Paul's ministry philosophy. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, Paul said, he and his ministry team, he says, we give no offense in anything that the ministry be not blamed, but in all things we approve or commend ourselves as the servants of God. In other words, everything we do should show that we're servants. It should never show that we're seeking to be served or we're looking for people to to give us a higher status in life than, than the people we serve have. Elisha did not seek this benefit out, and he tried to refuse her when she first invited him to eat with them. This blessing was not of Elisha's doing, but it was indeed a special blessing to Elijah. He used the room to rest, and on one particular stop, he wanted to find a way to bless this couple in return for how kind they'd been to him. Look at verse 11. And it fell on a day that he came thither, and he turned into the chamber, and he lay there, and he said to Gehazi, his servant, call this Shunammite. So Elijah, he's just laying down, resting in bed, and his servant Gehazi is with him. Now, this is our first meeting with Gehazi. The word servant here, it means an attendant or an assistant. He appears to have the same role that Elisha had for Elijah. It's even possible that Elisha was training Gehazi to be his replacement when he was gone. I don't know. We'll find out that he's not an adequate replacement later on, but if you want to spoil yourself, read ahead. While resting, Elisha gets an idea, and he asks Gehazi to relay a message to the woman. He says, go and call her. Now, I hear that, and I'm like, if you're so thankful, why don't you just go tell her yourself? If we keep reading, we said, and if you keep reading, anyway, it it gets a little confusing. We'll try to figure it out. But he's talking to her almost the entire time through his servant, Gehazi. Why do that? Why not just go talk to her? Well, first off, you have to understand the dynamic. He's in his own little house, little room, which is kind of like they consider it his. It's like his private property. So he would just be able to go and go inside. He didn't need to be like, hey, I'm here. Can you let me in? He would just go in. So it's possible she doesn't even know he's there at this point in time. So he's got to go find her possibly. In addition to that, men didn't just invite women into their home back then. It was considered inappropriate. And to be fair, I don't necessarily think our culture is better off for changing this approach. 
I don't hang out privately with women who are not my wife, not because I think they're up to something, and certainly not because I'm up to something. It's because I know the enemy is always up to something. I love my wife. I love my kids. I love my Savior too much to even take any chances with that. If you're married, you should not have close private friendships with the opposite sex. You shouldn't be meeting privately with the opposite sex. And I would say that principle is even more serious if you're a leader in the church. Part of the requirements of a pastor is that he is to be the husband of one wife. That's that's more than just staying married to your wife. It means that you don't treat any other woman like you're supposed to treat your wife. And so sending Gehazi to go find her would eliminate any mixed messages or confusion about his intentions. Because what he's about to do is official prophet business here. Look at verse 12, the message. Call the Shunammite. Verse 12, and when he had called her, she stood before him, Gehazi, not Elisha. And he said unto her, so this is funny because, so you got the woman, then you got Gehazi, and then Elisha somewhere. He's close enough that he can't hear her, but he can talk to Gehazi. And so he tells Gehazi, tell her this, say to her now, behold, you have been careful for us with all this care. What is to be done for you? Would you be spoken for to the king or to the captain of the host? She answered, I dwell among my own people. We'll get to her response in a second. But as I'm saying, it's kind of a weird conversation here because they're talking through, both of them, Gehazi. But he says to Gehazi, please say to her, listen, you've gone through so much trouble for us. The, the phrase careful here and care, it actually means to tremble. It refers to kind of being shaky because you're stressed out or you're concerned about something. In other words, literally, he's saying, you've shaken up your lives with all this trembling out of concern for us to take care of us. You've been so kind to us. What is to be done? Which literally means, how can I serve you? Can I speak to the king about you? You know, when he says spoken for, remember that Elijah's full-time housing is in the capital of Samaria, right, where the king's palace is. And because of God's call in Elijah's life, he has access to powerful people in Samaria. He says, can I talk to the king? Maybe you've got a complaint that you need resolved. I can speed the process up. Or maybe you'd like a blessing from the king. Or maybe you want me to talk to a captain in the military. Maybe you have a family member you'd like promoted or something. I'll how can I return the favor? You've just been so kind to us. And her response is interesting. I dwell among my own people. The word dwell is not just I live among my own people. It means I live among my own people. It means to be settled somewhere. I don't, I don't have any cares for court life. I don't have any complaint of an injustice done to me. I have no interest in making any request to the king or any other political figure. She was content and she was happy with the life she had. And that, to be blunt with you, was something I needed to read this week. I find it encouraging and challenging that this godly woman who had an ungodly king and lived in an ungodly culture, that she was content. I find that encouraging because I'm pretty sure most of us, if Elisha offered this to us, be like, you betcha I'd like to speak to the president. I've got a ton to say. I've got plenty to say about how things are right now for me. Now, I don't think she sat around sipping her coffee thinking everything is fine. 
while her nation slid further and further away from God. But neither was she discontent. Isn't that interesting? First Timothy chapter 6, if you'll turn there. The Lord really challenged me on this this week. Paul lays it down, these, you know, these first five chapters, he says, this, Timothy, is how you do church. Timothy, my plan is to get there quick to Ephesus, but if I take a while, you need to know how to pastor this church. You need how to lead the church. This is how church is to be done. That's why we call it a pastoral epistle. It's a letter to a pastor teaching him how to, how to lead the church. And now at the end of all these things he said, in verse 3, he says, if any man teach otherwise, everything I've told you, if anyone teaches opposite of this, and they don't consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness. In other words, if they're going to go off the rails and they're going to go do their own thing, they're going to go against what Jesus said, they're going to go against what I'm teaching you, he says, that one is proud. He knows nothing but he's doting about questions and arguments of words whereof comes envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men who have corrupt minds and who are destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. From such withdraw yourself. But godliness with contentment, that is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. So having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. I don't know if most believers today show the world godliness with contentment. I think we try to point out godliness, or we try to speak up for godliness, but I don't know if we show the world godliness with contentment. In fact, I think I see that the world sees us as laying claim to something that, to be truthful, isn't ours any more than it's theirs. It's not theirs either. This world, this nation, our lifestyle, none of that belongs to us. And none of it is promised to us in this life. We'll inherit the earth someday, right? The meek will inherit the earth, right? But that's when Jesus comes back, when He returns and He takes that which is His and He doles it out to us. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you faithful over many. And so, having food and clothing, that's enough for us to be content in this life. Now, food and clothing is wonderful, but that's not a lot. Like if we're talking about the qualifications, what are my qualifications to be content in this life? You got food? Yep. You got clothes? Yep. You're good. Yeah, but what about this? No. None of that is required to be content. None of it. Yeah, but it's wrong. You're right. Be godly with contentment. Is God providing for your needs? And you have everything you need to be content. Never, ever, ever compromise on godliness or righteousness. But when you're standing firm, do so with contentment because that's something supernatural. Anybody can take a stand for something they believe in. Being filled with the Holy Spirit allows us to be content and filled with joy, even when everything around us is looking bad. Well, when Gehazi gives her response to Elisha, 
Elisha's befuddled. He's like, there's got to be something we can do to bless this woman who's been so kind to us. And so in 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 14, Elisha says to Gehazi, what then is to be done for her? What, what do we do? And Gehazi answered, verily, she has no child and her husband is old. And Elisha says, call her. I got it. I got it. Now, the conversation between Gehazi and Elijah is kind of interesting here, because the word verily there is a marker word showing that you're asserting yourself. He's like, what do we do? What do we do? And it's almost like Gehazi is like, dude, she's barren. Can you do anything about that? I mean, that's, that's, the only, that's an obvious need. She wants to have a child, and she can't. Did you forget? <laughs> and the word child there actually means a son. I don't think she probably had any kids, but the word here means a son. She has no son, and her husband's old. There's not going to be anyone to pass the inheritance of land on to, and that day is coming sooner and than later, giving her husband's age. Maybe Elijah forgot they had no kids, or perhaps it never came up in any discussions he had had with them. Whatever the case is, Gehazi points out the one thing that might bless her, and Elijah says, that's it. Call her. And so Elijah, this time he's going to tell her in person because this is going to be not a blessing from him, but a blessing from God. He's going to speak to her not as a friend, but as God's prophet. And so when he had called her, Gehazi, she stood in the door. She still doesn't come inside his room. She stands in the door, and he tells her about this season, verse 16, according to the time of life, you shall embrace a son. About a year from now, that's what this season means, about a year from now, you're going to hold in your arms a, a son. Now look at her response. And she said, Nay, my Lord, thou man of God, do not lie unto your handmaid. The word nay means certainly not. That is not going to happen to me. She was a godly woman, and she had learned to be content with her situation being content doesn't mean necessarily that we still have hope. I find that two things are really lacking in the church at large today, certainly not at Calvary Chapel Orlando. Contentment and hope. We don't hear a lot of hope. There are many things that God doesn't promise us in His Word. Bearing children is one of those things. But even when it looks like all the doors are shut, I don't, think, I don't think the right attitude is to give up hope. I don't think the right attitude is to just say, well, let's just try to hold on and survive. I do think the Lord wants to always kindle hope in our hearts to say, listen, I am good, way more good than you could ever imagine. I know that there may be some of you here tonight, you've got a situation that you think, well, this is not likely to change. I don't see any evidence that it could change in the near future or even in the far future. I just need to try to weather the storm. I know it's easier to not hurt as much that way, but I don't think that's what God's called us to. I think He's called us to be people who have hope as well as being godly and content. Well, God didn't promise this to every Israeli woman, but Elijah was God's prophet, and he wouldn't say such a thing unless, if the Lord didn't tell him to. 
But note here, when she says, no, don't lie to me, that has not going to happen. Notice he doesn't argue with her hopelessness or even her accusation. Elisha leaves his message with her and keeps quiet. In fact, the conversation ends there. But God does do what Elijah says, whether she believes it or not. Look at verse 17. And the woman conceived and bare a son that season, at that season that Elijah had sent unto her, according to the time of life. We talked this morning about being double-minded, how it's less about not believing hard enough, and it's more about just trusting God and walking in obedience to His ways. But here's the wonderful, matchless grace of Jesus. Even when we aren't trusting the Lord, James didn't say God won't give us what we ask for. It just says we won't have confidence when we ask. Let not that man think he'll receive anything. Doesn't mean he won't. She didn't have any confidence with this blessing from Elisha, but she got it anyway. And that is God's mercy. That is how much he loves us that even though she accused God's messenger of lying and had no hope in what God wanted to do in her life, that God still wanted to be good to her. God, His character doesn't waver when our character does. Have you ever had one of those moments where you've had zero faith, you haven't trusted God at all, and then you walk around the corner of life and there the Lord shows up? Those are some of the hardest moments sometimes because you go, I don't deserve this right now. To which the Lord would say, you never could have deserved it. I don't give it because you deserve it. I give it because I love you. Isn't our God awesome? (laughs) He's an awesome God. And that's why the scripture tells us, so give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his love endures forever. Amen? Let's all stand. Lord, very often it's through these moments like this woman experiences that you teach us to trust you. You teach us that you're so gracious and you're so reliable. You're just so good, even beyond what we could hope for, and you rekindle hope in our lives. Lord, we want to be those who are godly. We want to be those who are content, and we want to be those who live in hope. Lord, we can't do that on our own, but tonight we commit to you. That's how we want to live. Lord, we want our kids Lord, our, our loved ones, our coworkers, the unbelievers in our families and in our, our friendships, Lord, and our neighbors, we want them to see something radically different in us. And so, Lord, as we yield these things to you and say, God, we want to be like this, we ask that you would fill us afresh with your spirit, Lord, that you would live through us in these areas that we are surrendering to you. In Jesus' name we pray. We thank you for being so good. Amen.